What is Decision Tech by Fidelity? It's technology that can help you find a stock based on what's trending or an investing goal. It's real-time insights and information delivered in your own customized view of the market. It's smarter trading technology for smarter trading decisions. And it's only from Fidelity. Open an account today at fidelity.com trading. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSC SIPC. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramer. Other people want to make friends. I'm just trying to make you some money. My job's not just to entertain, but to educate, teach. Call, call me at 1-800-73-CBC or tweet Jimmy Chill at Jim Kramer. Unless. I keep thinking this is an unless market, as in we'll go higher unless this or that happens to derail us. My problem? Even on an encouraging day where we opened down hard and then rebounded, I like that. Dow only dipping just 26 points. This would be actually inching up 0.11%. NASDAQ advancing 0.20%. Wow. There are an awful lot of unlesses out there. It makes me a little more concerned, even as we've been experiencing pretty sluggish days lately, and that works off the dreaded overbought condition. So you know what I'm going to do? Tonight, I'm going to tick down the unlesses that need to be on your radar screen, even if you're a snorting, stampeding bull. Unless you're a Norman, the breeding bull we brought in to impregnate our late Longhorn ambush, and he just charged around all over the place instead of doing his darn job. Well, that was back when I was trying to be a gentleman farmer. That is an earlier version of, yes, you guessed it, Jimmy Chill. For every other bull, though, here's what unlesses you should be thinking about. The first unless, Boeing. We interviewed Gary Kelly, the CEO of Southwest Air, earlier today at Squawk on the Street. And somehow he was able to deliver a good quarter despite a ton of dependence on that 737 MAX. Gary's not happy, obviously. He explained his earnings would be dramatically higher if the MAX were flying. A number so big that I could easily have seen this stock hitting 52-week, if not all-time high. But he swore allegiance to the MAX, and perhaps more important, to Boeing. A great American company, he pointed out. Getting that plane back in the air is the most important thing that could happen to help Southwest and every other airline that depends on it. If you knew when it was coming back, you'd buy this stock hand over fist. Kelly says that the public won't mind flying it once it passes inspection. The pilots know whether it's safe, and they wouldn't do anything to injure their passengers. Plus, it's their lives on the line, too. But it's not just the airlines that are hostage to Boeing. Today, Morgan Stanley upgraded General Electric, arguing that its turnaround is at last at hand. GE's long-term care insurance woes sound like they are, let's say, handled. The black hole that was the power business is being fixed, and aerospace is pristine. Couldn't be better. GE is a total winner, unless... Unless Boeing fails to get this darn plane certified. G's among the many aerospace suppliers who won't be able to make their numbers unless the 737 MAX goes back in being sold and is in production. How big a deal is this plane? If Boeing keeps botching this, it could shave as much as half a point off our gross domestic product, according to the president. Southwest and GE are among a host of companies that could be great investments unless... The Federal Aviation Administration refused to approve the MAX by July, the outside date that Boeing's giving us. Now, I hope that Boeing's practicing UPOD, under-promise, and over-deliver with that new deadline. 
Everybody seems to have a high opinion of David Calhoun, Boeing's new CEO, and that includes Gary Kelly himself. So I'm hoping he'll get it right. That's a lot of hope, though. What other unlesses do we need to watch for? Well, there's the impeachment trial. Follow on that one at all? Now, I've been telling you the result will be a foregone conclusion, which makes it a total sideshow as far as the stock market is concerned, although I think it does make good TV. But I can't imagine what the Democrats could say that would make the Republicans break ranks against the president of their own party during election year. Could there be an unless here, though, some smoking gun that blows the case wide open? It's possible, although I think it's incredibly unlikely, especially since the Senate's refused to consider new evidence. Still, it's a possibility, however small. Third unless the coronavirus. It's a frightening thing, especially now that China's quarantining entire cities, not just Wuhan, where the epidemic started, but even Beijing now. At the moment, 25 million people are currently on lockdown in China. Now, this coronavirus isn't like the super flu from Stephen King's The Stand. It's not Ebola. It's not even SARS, which did kill about a tenth of the people who caught it. Nevertheless, it's very scary. Fortunately, history tells us we can quickly get this epidemic under control. Unless, that is, the Chinese government isn't telling the truth about the mortality rate or how easily the disease can be spread. China's track record, frankly, has been pretty mixed when it comes to this kind of thing. Their government tried to cover up SARS, and it led to hundreds of unnecessary deaths. Hopefully, they learn their lesson. If China can get the outbreak under control, there's not that much to worry about. But if they can't, the economic ripples will do real damage hotels, casinos, cruise lines, luxury retailers with Chinese exposure, to say nothing of the airlines. The fourth unless, Apple. Did you know that Apple's stock is now the largest in every major index? The company sells the most beloved products I've ever seen, and now they're, ta- uh, they're tacking on a, this incredibly rapidly growing service revenue stream. Among the credit card, Apple TV, Apple Care, iCloud Backup, the iPhone 11, it's all looking good. Unless, that is, we've misjudged the level of demand. Something that could cause this red-hot stock to get crushed. Now, I've been taught that when you have this level of own-it-don't-trade-it conviction about a quarter, as I do, there will be people who get cocky and pile in the stock at the last minute. Those traders are going to be your enemy. If there's even the tiniest of shortfall. I love Apple, but the stock absolutely cannot handle disappointment here. And thanks to its enormous size, the averages won't be able to handle it either. Big unless. Fourth unless... I'll make the fifth. The economic backdrop in this country is pretty close to perfect, perfect for this stock market. We have nice growth. We have no inflation. Federal Reserve on our side to prevent any potential slowdown. Unless, unless this turns out to be a situation like we had exactly two years ago in the lead up to the Super Bowl. That's when the employment number came in way too hot and the Fed switched from our friend to our enemy. The newfound fear unraveled a whole set of strategies involving the volatility index that we didn't even know about, only put a huge ton of pressure on the S&P 500. Now, we got clear sailing right now, unless history repeats itself with the Fed. Bottom line, you can always play the unless game, but I bring it up because the higher this market goes, the more likely it is that we won't be able to handle a big unless, let alone two or three. So when you start feeling overconfident, when you turn into snorting Norman the bull, just remember that bad things can still happen. So do your job of protecting yourself instead of running all over the place to no avail whatsoever. Let's go to Gianna in my home state of New Jersey. Gianna. Booyah, Professor Kramer. Booyah. My daughter, Gianna. She has a question for you about a stock she owns. Hold on. 
Big booyah to you, Kramer. I'm John. I'm six years old. Me and my dad watch you all the time. We love your show. Which I'm going to cry. Which is Disney. I want to know if this is a good time to buy more Disney stock. Thank you, and booyah. Holy cow. Social, social consciousness. Uh, she is fantastic, and I am going to tell her, yes, I think Disney can still be bought, and the stock was down today. And do other shows, uh, I'm asking my, my executive producer right now, Regina Gillian. Regina, how many six-year-olds call in on the other shows? Were any six-year-olds interviewed at Davos? I don't think so. I rest my case. Let's go to Cam in Vermont. Cam! A big booyah from Vermont, Jim. Cold but great. I'm a long-time listener and a first-time caller. Yes. Uh, I wanted to thank you for being an inspiration to young investors like myself and for helping me better understand the uh, stock market. Oh, but Cam, there aren't supposed to be any young investors. I learned that. People are supposed to be turned off of the stock market. Wrong! It's because people drive yeah, them off. They make them fearful. Framer. All right, let's go to work. All right, so my question is in regards to Spirit Airlines. Ticker symbol save. So it does not have any flight exposure to China, which is key given the growing concerns over the coronavirus. It also does not have a level of 737 max exposure of its peers. SAFE has severely underperformed major indices and other airlines in the last year. Right. However, could investors buy the stock at these levels or should we wait just in case? You know, Cam, I think it's okay. I mean, JetBlue. Uh, which is another company that has historically not done that great as a stock. They report a good number and the stock flew. So I'm going to bless yours uh, for half a position, the other half after it reports. Okay, the higher this market goes, the more likely it can handle a big unless. And there are five unlesses. I don't want you to get too confident. Remember, we're fine, but we can't handle unless. Oh, man, money tonight. Grubhub just unveiled a new digital platform for users to place pickup orders through the app. The answer comes as new data shows that DoorDash has edged past Grubhub to become the leader in digital food delivery sales in the U.S. Could it be a seamless way for the company to add to its potential profit? Or is the company for sale? I sat down with the CEO. Then, one of the more interesting stock market narratives in 2019 was the comeback of Snap. But can that move continue in 2020? I'm going to give you my take. And what's on the horizon for First Horizon in the new year? I have got the CEO. So stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com. Or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. What is Decision Tech by Fidelity? It's technology that can help you find a stock based on what's trending or an investing goal. It's real-time insights and information delivered in your own customized view of the market. It's smarter trading technology for smarter trading decisions. And it's only from Fidelity. Open an account today at fidelity.com slash trading. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSC SIPC. Over the course of last year, I repeatedly warned you away from the online food delivery stocks, especially Grubhub. 
I was worried about a surge of venture capital-backed competition that forced the whole industry into a race to the bottom for pricing. And I was right. Grubhub stock got annihilated. When the company reported an ugly quarter at the end of October, the stock plunged from $58 to $33 practically overnight. Then it came roaring back from the strength of a Wall Street Journal story saying it is willing to put itself up for sale. At the same time, it has rolled out an incredibly impressive platform to digitize the crazy world of takeout. With technology, I can tell you, as a restaurant owner, I found quite intriguing. But the industry is still in a tough place and needs consolidation, which is why we wanted to check in with Matt Maloney. And Matt Maloney, you've seen him on the show. Uh, he is the founder and CEO of Grubhub. And we saw him at Art, Bird, and Whiskey Bar in New York's Grand Central Station this morning. It's owned by Joe Germanata, who, fun fact, also happens to be Lady Gaga's dad. Take a look. Matt, tell us about the new ultimate technology and what it means for both diners and restaurateurs. Jim, you know better than anyone else. Pickup sucks. We already revolutionized delivery, and now we're revolutionizing pickup. The days of walking into a restaurant and seeing those 10 people in line and having to stand there and wait and wait and wait until you can talk to someone, they're gone. So we have the whole new system which digitally integrates the ordering mechanism, the platforms, the front of the house and the back of the house so you always know exactly when your order, where it is and what, when you can pick it up. All right, so Joe runs this place. It's his place. Art, Bird and Whiskey Bar. What yeah. does it do for him? Well, so, it, it, so we're in Grand Central Station. There's thousands of people walking by every hour. People want to get their art bird, they want to get their whiskey, and they want to get their chicken. And so they can just walk up, they can pre-order on the train, on the Grub app. It immediately goes into their system, hits the back of the house, they start prepping the food, they can watch the order right there. It turns green. where? On their handheld? Yeah, on their device, anywhere they want. So if they want to pre-order, it's on the train. If they want to get here, there's a kiosk. They don't have to talk to someone. There's four of them lined up. We're going to walk through it in a minute. Just beep, beep, beep. They're done. They immediately see on the heads-up display their name, their order number. It's yellow or it's green. Go pick it up. So no more queuing up right here. You don't have to have the front of the staff. No more all those people just waiting around while no. other people are eating. You see what those guys doing there? That's the point. It's like a digital queue. It's what we've done for platforms and delivery. We're pulling it into pickup now, and then we're helping the restaurants be way more efficient. This has got to work uh, colleges, stadiums? Yep. That's where it started. It started in colleges. We've been uh, evolving on this for over five years. We're in Ohio State. Arizona University. We're in over 10 major universities and we keep rolling out more. The point is, like, there they have the students, they have, they have 15 minutes in between classes. It's just bam, bam, bam. They have to get through as fast as possible. Stadiums, too. We're working on a lot of big stadium deals because nobody wants to go stand in the beer line and miss the game. Nightmare. You, you want to order from your hand, from your seat. You know when it's ready. You just walk up there, grab it, and come back. All right, so this is a great proposition. Can you get a stadium? Is anyone talking? I mean, you've got Ohio Absolutely. State. You've got oh, yeah. Yeah. We have nothing to announce right now, but I well, think, I think very soon. Where you gonna, if you're not going to, where else are you going to announce it other than here? But we'll come back. We'll come back. All right. Speaking of announcing. Yeah. Matt, uh, October 28th, 2019, you announced that online diners are becoming more promiscuous. It's a great, great word. It's a great word, but people don't understand it. So you're going to describe it right people now. Because I think a lot of people are like thrown by it. Well, I would say Google that word, but my point was... People are shopping on a lot of different platforms because ultimately the, the restaurants are getting commoditized. There's, there's basically the same restaurants on the same platforms. They have the same menu items. They're basically the same price. And then the delivery mechanisms are basically the same. So how do you, how do you create No loyalty, edge? no scale. 
Well, we're building loyalty. That was part of the letter you're referencing. Right. We said one of the advantages that we're going to lean into is that we have this massive loyalty infrastructure where we channel hundreds of millions of dollars from restaurants, restaurants to give incentives to diners. And restaurants build loyalty through their programs, and so we give them the free loyalty but, but Matt, tools. you took a hit. I mean, the EBITDA numbers, you sure. said you had to take them down. The stock had been down just a gigantic amount. The only reason why it stabilized, Matt, was a Wall Street Journal article that said you're for sale. Now, what happened there? If you're not for sale, how could a major publication say you are for sale? You're a pretty candid guy. I'm a pretty candid guy. Uh, we had I think so. We had asked, an, like a, it's a rhetorical question. We had a no comment on the article, which is the appropriate what, thing to do. they made it up? Like they got up in the I, morning and I, made it you know, up? I can't, I can't tell. I don't, know, I don't know who their sources were. They didn't share that with but me. But then immediately, what do I hear? I got guys like uh, Credit Suisse. They're saying, you know what, $128. I mean, you're going to turn down $128 a share? That seemed like a pretty the, good deal. The crazy thing about this story is, like, we're a public company. We have an obligation to review any valid offer, and of course we would. We haven't had any offers. And so my, you, so DoorDash and Postmates have not contacted you. Well, my or? my comment was, we hadn't had any offers, and right. we're not seeking offers because we're we're really invested in the products like Ultimate that we're launching okay, right but now. If Uber were to come to you. It would be an unbelievable consolidation. You can make a fortune for your shareholders. This seems like a logical proposition. We would totally evaluate any offer. But it hasn't. But we haven't had one yet. And that was my point. We're not looking for one. So they just uh, We think we're building an advantage. All right, we're going to say loyalty. that article was an err and ill that's Philadelphia accent. And ill advised. I, I think they were barking up the wrong tree. But the stock is still up because of that. Now, in order to be able to sustain the increase, I have to believe that this proposition yes. is going to make it so that you are differentiated. Yeah, look, it's a, it's it's widely documented at over two hundred and fifty billion dollars in US domestic takeout. Over half of that is pickup. And by the way, none of my competitors are addressing pickup. Right. And we've just unveiled a massively researched five-year-long program to revolutionize pickup in all these high-velocity places that really need it. Do any uh, quick service restaurants want it, or is it really restaurants like mine and like Joe's here? Look, the, the, the concept was first rolled out in high-velocity, massive-scale QSRs. I'm sure many people have used Taco that well to in the morning pre, after pre-order. Kind of a big night but out. that type of technology is not available to restaurants like yours or Joe's. No, and so that's why we built this, to bring this to every other restaurant, because consumers love the convenience. Okay, so what does it mean in terms of number of people you need at the restaurant, people to register, people who greet these people when they come in? It changes your economics. I mean, you know the economics front of house, back of house. You can take those front of house order takers, you can stick them in the back of the house so they can prep more food faster, higher quality, higher higher service for your customers. It's when you're just paying a, $18 an hour, we need that. Yeah, as the minimum wage keeps increasing, that's better for restaurateurs. Okay, so where are we in terms of the rollout? And why did we hear about it now? We wanted to make sure it worked. We didn't want to roll out a bunch of technology just to have it fall over on itself. This stuff works. It is, it is tested in Grand Central Station. You can't get a better live test than this location we're at right now. That's why I wanted to talk to you right here. No. So I mean, we know this is working. We are rolling out as fast as possible. We are taking names. Our queue to get this installed is hundreds long at this point. Okay. This, here's something that calls me. I understand that DoorDash, which is highly unprofitable, is valued at somewhere between seven, eight billion. You're at five billion. That I think find is ridiculous because you're making money, obviously not at the level you were. Why don't you consolidate the industry yourself? You're an aggressive fella. You know what? What? This is the difference between public and private valuations. The private valuations just based on nothing. But they're crushing everybody. We heard it from Rich Allison and Domino's. I mean, just, they're unsustainable, aren't they? If you're selling dollars for 80 cents, I feel like that's unsustainable, but it grows fast.
Well, I, I, do you think that if there were consolidation, your gross, gross margins would go up, or is it just without this, it's just going to be uh, race to the bottom? Look, if you if you uh, if you add if you double your business with a highly unprofitable, you're gonna you're gonna screw up your union economics. So you got to figure out how to reconcile the business before you really uh, see the benefits of consolidation. But I think I think what you're pointing out is. There's a reckoning coming to the industry. I think it's going to be 2020. Was WeWork the beginning of the rec- reckoning, in your opinion? I think so. I think I think we're already I think we're already like two steps. I mean, we're we're in the early innings. Right. But what happens this year is going to be interesting. But don't you think DoorDash wants to wipe you out? I mean, isn't that their purpose? I saw them try to wipe out Caviar yeah, before they bought it. We're all we're all competing. We're all competing extremely aggressively. You think it's a level playing field? I think I think the challenge is some competitors have a very limited runway of cash, whereas we. Don't we are profitable? We have, we have an unlimited power. runway of cash. I mean, Uber has a ten billion dollar runway of cash. Yes. I mean, it's you're you're talking massive scale versus you know six months of, of cash available. All right, last so question. Something's got to happen. There are thousands of restaurants, uh, not as good as Joe's, of course, or maybe mine. Thousands that need this. Matt, you're a small company. How do you get this word out? Jim Cramer. Matt Maloney, founder and CEO of Grubhub. Thanks, sir. <laughs> Good to see you, partner. Good to see you. <laughs> if you want to pick individual stocks, and you know I think that alongside index funds, stocks are the best way to manage your money if you have the time and the inclination, then you need to know what works. That's why I'm always searching for examples, uh, for case studies that can illustrate how a beaten down company can change its stripes, because some of the biggest wins I've ever had were turnaround stories. And right now, there's an incredible turn going on for some time in Snap. That's right. The parent of Snapchat. Not only was Snap the hottest comeback of 2019 with a stock that surged from 550 to 16 over the course of last year, nearly a triple, but the social media play just keeps roaring, climbing all the way to 19 as of today. Darn thing's now on the cusp of the 20s. I know I'm not early here, but I'm telling you, I'm describing the turnaround, and that would be the first time since 2018. I wouldn't be surprised if it does indeed have more room to run. Look, it's at 1925 right now. And I think that it could go higher. Did I not do the piece here? Of course not. You can... Go to Twitter and yell at me. I don't care. I'm chill. What makes this move so remarkable? A little over a year ago, Snap had been written off and left for dead. I cannot emphasize this enough. After coming public to great fanfare in 2017, this eagerly anticipated deal quickly turned sour. As the growth peaked, the losses looked endless. And Snap's most popular format, Snapchat Stories, was quickly copied by... Darth Vader Instagram! Even worse, Snapchat had been popular with young people and suddenly lost that cool factor. Remember when Kylie Jenner said she didn't open Snapchat anymore? That caused the stock to lose 6% of its value in a day. And those sellers were right because it kept getting hammered. Hey, you don't have to keep up with the Kardashians, but it sure does pay to take Kylie Jenner seriously. As Snap's revenue growth slowed from the triple digits down to the mid-30s, by the end of 2018, well, they still had no earnings. In fact, they didn't even have any free cash flow. So there was nothing for the more value-oriented investors to seize, to circle around the wagons uh, when the growth guys got lost interest. Very few buyers were willing to stick their necks out. Management seemed pretty clueless, which is extra bad. Remember that they're deeply entrenched because shareholders don't have any meaningful voting rights. And that's how the stock plunged from 29 at its uh, 2017 peak down to less than 5 bucks at its 2018 lows. Look at that. Ain't no valley low enough. Then last year, Snap got its groove back. 
At first, it was hard to understand why. By the middle of last summer, the stock was back up to the mid-teens. You had to wonder if this was just a relief rally, maybe a head fake. Turns out it was the real deal. Snap reported a fantastic quarter in July, made it crystal clear a turn was at hand. And then they did it again. And that's the most crucial piece of the puzzle here. For its first two years as a public company, no one trusted Snap because they kept missing the numbers. That's reasonable. But over time, they've become steadily more consistent to the point where they have earned the benefit of the doubt. Uh, and it now makes a habit of smashing the estimates. On top of that, management's made great strides on the profitability front. Now, they're still losing money. But the losses have gotten a heck of a lot smaller. In fact, Snap may even turn a very small profit when they report their fourth quarter results the week after next. By 2021, the analyst community expects Snap to earn 28 cents a share, then rising to 56 cents a share in 2022 and 92 cents in 2023. I mean, this thing is no longer an earnings black hole. Best of all, Snap has ARG. That's accelerating revenue growth again. The company's growth rate bottomed out at 36% in the fourth quarter of 2018. See, stock markets anticipate this stuff. Over the course of last year, they gradually picked up speed. In the most recent quarter, Snap had a 50% growth rate. That is a major improvement. And you know Wall Street loves to pay up for accelerating revenue growth. And that's why we call it ARG. So how did they do it? How did Snap make those impressive numbers happen? How did this go like this? All right, first of all, they fixed... Their core product. Yeah, that's right. They fixed Snapchat on Android phones. Even when Snap came public and investors were excited about it, their Android app was garbage, which is not great seeing as Android is the biggest smartphone platform. They tried to fix it in early 2018, but that redesign only made things worse. Last year, though, Snap finally figured out Android, and by late May, last May, Snapchat had 41 million monthly downloads on Android, surpassing the previous record of 30 million from 2016. Meanwhile, they also fixed up their iPhone app, and the results was an across-the-board increase in engagement, which is what matters. Basically, Snap had a user experience problem, and they fixed it. Now, here's the crucial bit. The users started coming back, and so did the advertisers. When Snap came public, you know I was very worried that ad agencies might sour on Snapchat. That is exactly what happened as its user engagement deteriorated. But now that Snap's reaching millennials and smartphone-addicted Zoomers, advertisers are throwing money at the guys. Hey, by the way, throw in the fact that CEO Evan Spiegel started showing a level of focus that he seemed to lack when this one came public, and that's the turnaround in a nutshell. The question is, of course, can Snap maintain its momentum. Now, in the last few weeks, Snap has has caught not one, not two, but three upgrades from major analysts uh, and one analyst initiation at Outperform. That's why the stock surged nearly 20% just since the beginning of the year. That's a very big move, right? Well, January 8th, Jeffries went positive, citing the pickup in user growth and the improved ad platform. As they see it, Snap is a clear pathway to profitability, and the stock has more room to run in 2020. The very next day, Callan upgraded, too, based on the results of its annual ad buyer survey. According to their data, 10% of ad buyers say they'd use Snap to start a new branding campaign for 13 to 34-year-olds. Okay, so 10% may not sound too much to you, but that's 10% of the enormous global advertising market. And that's not going to impinge on Facebook. They are doing unbelievably well. But it's more than an asterisk. Plus, the 13 to 34 group is a coveted demographic. Avatars want to get you while you're still young and persuadable. Then today, Baird published its social media survey, and this really got me noticed. It said, things are looking up for Snap. Uh, and I quote, Snapchat urge surges among millennials. While Snapchat saw the smallest improvement in overall engagement trends, we noted 
the increase in engagement among the 25 to 34 age group was the largest single increase across all platforms and cohorts, supporting our view that users will remain engaged even as they grow older. End quote. That's that coveted demographic again. Now, I have some negatives. You have to be careful after such a monster run. I mean, there are real concerns here. For starters, Snap's seen three quarters of uh, accelerating revenue growth. But eventually, the law of large numbers is going to kick in. Numbers are going to start slowing again, making the stock less enticing. Meanwhile, Snap has some deep-pocketed competitors. Not only do they need to worry about Facebook, which I reiterate is the best in show, and Twitter. But now there's also this TikTok. And if you've never heard of it, go ask your kids. What it really comes down to is whether or not Snap can hit its earnings estimates. Companies expected to make $0.92 cents in 2023. This thing is trading at only 21 times the out-year earnings estimates. That makes it a steal even after this run. But again, only if they make the numbers. But I think they are. If the estimates are too low, this thing's headed to the stratosphere. It's the right stock for this environment. Bottom line, I do think the stock of Snap has more upside, and I am painfully aware that I'm late after this run. But I don't love that it's catching so many upgrades going into its next earnings report, February 4. So here's what I want you to do. I recommend, if you like Snap, putting on half your position before the quarter. Then if the stock gets hit after the quarter, you can go back back up the truck. Oh, and Evan, listen to me. I know I was tough on you when the stock was getting hammered, but now I'm Jimmy Chill. And I, I welcome you on the show anytime to tell Kramerica how you engineered this magnificent comeback. I want to go to Joe in New York, please. Joe! Hey, Jim. How are you? I'm a little thinner, uh, thank you. Wait. What's up? I wanted your opinion on Roku. All right, I went long the stock back in October around 119 and uh, bought in some April options end of December, beginning of January to trade because this thing is so damn volatile. <sighs> Roku's so hard for me. Uh, it's so hard because, as I say endlessly, I didn't like it in the 40s, so who am I to like it up here? Although, thank heavens, I did kind of realize it was going up. Roku is a trade. When it's down four or six, it always seems to work. When it's up, it doesn't seem to work. But you know what? Whoever thought it could get to where it is? Call it a snapback. The stock's got more upside. But consider putting on half of your position before the quarter, half if it gets hit after quarters. I wonder how I would look at one of those snacks on things. i, I got to try some time. Now, there's much more mad money ahead, including my exclusive with First Horizon. How's the company positioning itself after earnings? I'm breaking them down. Then, as, is it too late to get on board the semiconductor train? I'm out in the space. The lawyer calls rapid fire tonight's edition of the Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. Remember at the top of the show, I talk about the unless, unless this happened, unless that happened. But one of the things I didn't like to see were the bank stocks getting hit today. Now, we've made it through the biggest part of the bank earnings season. So what I want to do is circle back to something unusual. While the big nationals delivered pretty good numbers, for the most part, the smaller regionals reported fairly mixed results across the board, with one big exception, one of our faves, First Horizon National. The Tennessee-based regional bank that's slowly but surely turning itself into a powerhouse in the fastest-growing area of the country, the southeast. Not only did First Horizon post sharply better than sales and earnings, their major source of strength was the non-cyclical side of the business, like fixed-income capital markets and other services. It was a remarkable quarter, so the question is, can it keep delivering? Let's check in with Brian Jordan, the chairman, president, and CEO of First Horizon National, get a better sense of these results and where his company is headed. Mr. Jordan, welcome back to Bad Money. Thank you. It's good to be back. 
All right, Brian, this was just another very solid quarter. And I thought the most important thing from the perspective of the analysts is something called the net interest margin. A lot of companies saw compression because of the decline in rates. How come you didn't see that? Well, we were started really in the fall of last year. We started recognizing the trend was going to continue with lower rates, and we were very aggressive in the way we worked to ensure that our deposit costs did not get out of control. And we worked very, very hard to control the, the asset side of the balance sheet as well. As you, if you looked underneath the covers, you'd see that loan yields went down, and that's what you'd expect when interest rates, particularly LIBOR, driven by Fed funds, declines. But by working on both sides of the balance sheet, we were able to moderate a substantial portion of the impact. Right. I mean, just so people know, the other the big banks weren't able to, and their stocks have now come off since they reported. As people were worried about this, you also did something monumental. You did an acquisition. I know it hasn't closed yet. You bought a bank I've been waiting for someone to buy because I think it's a, a bank that has a lot of powerhouse potential, but just hasn't been able to pull it off yet. Even though I know you like them, First Horizon buying Iberia Bank to become maybe the most important bank in the Southeast one together. So you've got a slide. It says First Horizon and Iberia Bank, Iberia Bank better together. Tell me what makes them better together. Well, absolutely. We're very, very excited about that potential merger of equals. We're in the process of, as you said, getting regulatory approvals. But when we put the two organizations together, we will have a powerhouse footprint all across the South. We'll be in 11 states. If you look at projected household growth rate, our footprint ought to grow on average about 25% faster than the U.S. as a whole. The thing that's really exciting about it is we have business models that are very, very similar. Our people go to market in, in almost identically the same way. They approach customers and communities in a very similar fashion to us. And so as we look at it, we're not going to, we don't think we're going to miss a beat in terms of serving our customers and our communities. And we're going to bring to our bankers and our customers more products and services, which should make life better for everybody. So we're excited about it. The two will be better together in the sense that we can invest in more products and more services across a broader customer base long term with a bigger balance sheet. Well, I think two of the most unsung markets, Tennessee which is absolutely on fire for both corporations and for homes. A lot of people coming from New York City relocating Tennessee because of the taxes. And Louisiana, because of the amazing oil and gas market, maybe oil's not flying, but the amount of infrastructure being built is probably the most in the country. Will you be able to take advantage of all that incredible manufacturing, plastic, all the the, uh, development of LNG when you move to Louisiana? Yes, we will. We, we will bring a, a broad, diverse customer uh, a product set to our customers, and we'll do it with a bigger balance sheet. So we'll have bigger hold positions, and we'll have the ability to, to continue invest in product. We also open up in, in that merger markets like Dallas and Atlanta will be a $12 billion bank in Florida. So we're opening up some very attractive, high-growth markets that you, you, you take New Orleans, Louisiana, and oil and gas in Houston and Dallas, and you take the high growth in Atlanta and South Florida. We're very excited about the footprint and the product set we think will be competitive with the largest banks in the country, and we believe that we'll continue to be able to differentiate our products and services by looking and feeling like a community-based or- organization to our customers. 
Now, typically, you and I have not uh, had to talk about politics, but there is a there's an election coming up. Uh, primary come up. The, some of the people in the Democratic Party are doing very well. They are not exactly the banking industry's friend. Do we need to worry yet? Or is that just something uh, that you look over and say it, that can't happen? Well, I don't think it's it, it's anything to worry about yet. I'm I'm not particularly worried. I think that the the work that was put in place around regulation that came out of a Dodd-Frank is is still working its way through the system. And I think if you look at the banking industry today, everything from stress testing and capital levels to uh, how we manage our businesses and report risk and monitor risk is significantly better than it was 10 years ago. So I, I think while that may be a talking point on the on the political stump, I think from a practical perspective, the regulatory bodies, the Fed, the FDIC, the OCC, and state regulators have taken the framework of Dodd-Frank and created a much safer, sound banking system. So I think when we have the next test in, in an economic downturn, I expect that the financial services industry is going to do quite well. I totally agree with you, and particularly with your bank, which I know has done such a great job and is so straight shooting. I want to thank Brian Jordan. He's chairman, president, and CEO of First Horizon FHN. Great job again, sir. Good to see you. Thank you. Low risk, good dividend, growing over time. I don't know. Any portfolio should have room for that. Net money's back into the break. It is time! It's time to light with the Rockers! And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready, Ski? Die! Time for the lightning round! Let's start with Robert in Missouri. Robert! Booyah, Mr. Kramer. Booyah. First long-time viewer, first-time caller. Like. And let me say that the service you provide us home gamers is a true gift. That's what I do. Thank uh, you. Yep, my stock uh, is in the tech sector. It's got great fundamentals. It's uh, with the with the build out of five G and and the cloud, and coupled with the signing of the trade deal, phase one of the trade deal. I don't understand why it's lagging. Maybe I'm missing something, or I'm being impatient. My stock is just both. What? What stock? Cisco. Wow, you're from Missouri. I think it's a show-me situation. Why? They missed the quarter. They missed the quarter bad. I thought Chuck Robbins was very polished the other day in Davos. I am sticking with this. Big fish for my travel trust. Got a nice dividend, good balance sheet. The 5G, you got to be careful. It is enterprise 5G. It is not consumer 5G, so therefore it's a 2021 story, but I think it's worth owning. Let's go to Hernan in New Jersey. Hernan. Hey, Jim. Thank you so much for taking my call. My pleasure. Jim, um, I'm calling today about APA, Apache Corp? Uh, no. No. Uh, uh-uh. It, it's moved a great deal, and most importantly, it is fossil fuels. One of the things that's so difficult for fossil fuel companies are is to not be fossil fuel. That is their ESG problem. Let's go to Steve in New York. Steve. Hello, Jim Booyah. How are you doing tonight? Good. How I'm about you, Steve? Lattice Semiconductor, LSCC. It's lagged. It's lagged and it's good. Interesting idea. I should have thought about it earlier. It's, you know, I know the stock looks good. The chart's up, but it has lag. Why don't we go to Carol in New York? Carol. Hey, Jim. What are your thoughts on IMFO? That company 
which we also know as IHS Market, is a company that I have followed forever. Dan Jurgen was one of my investors. It's got some incredible, incredible backing. I've liked it from the day it came public, and yet have I talked about it? No. And that is my bad, because it is a great company. I'm not done. Let's go to Richard in Texas. Hey, hey Jim. Celebrating 50 years of marriage to the same beautiful bride. Lucky uh, man. R.S. RSG, what do you think about that? I We're like high. the waste management business. RSG actually doing as well as, as waste management. You got a good one there, and congratulations for 50 years. And that, leisure, inclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Is it too late to get on board the semiconductor train? Have you missed these phenomenal runs and everything from Micron to Teradyne, NVIDIA, LAM Research, as well as Intel this very night? Let me put it this way. After tonight's smashing performance by Intel, driven by both still strong PC sales, as well as a resurgent data center, I don't know if I would chase them up here. A ton of good news is now priced right into this very evening. Hey, but listen, if you get a pullback caused by an exogenous shock, you know, something terrible happening with the illness in Asia, then it's not too late. If you read the research in the group, though, you think we're in the early innings of this comeback. We're not, people. This moves in the middle innings at best. You know what? We may even need a seventh inning stretch. When it comes to the semis at this point, it is case by case. Some are trains that have left the station. Some are only just pulling out. That's the ones we're looking for. And some of them, they ain't going anywhere. Let me give you the lay of the land. First, the key to the chip makers has always been supply and demand. There are two things propelling demand right now. The first, the rollout of 5G wireless. It's the mother load, according to a terrific note this morning from Cowan. They say 5G needs 50 to 100 percent more memory power. That's fueling voracious demand for 5G chips. And that comes on top of the second trend, the unexpectedly explosive surge in demand from the iPhone 11, Apple. As I keep telling you, you can't simply, you just can't understand how great this phone is until you've experienced it yourself. And by the way, the iPhone 11, it is packed to the gills with semiconductors. For example, Taiwan Semi yesterday announced that they got a flood of new orders and they were from Apple. If Taiwan Semi is seeing that kind of uptick, get this, you can do NXP, Cirrus Logic, Micron, Broadcom, Qualcomm, Marvell, Corvo, and Skyworks, which reported this evening. More on that in a second. I mention these companies because they're all part of the big 5G food chain and the Apple food chain. Then there's the supply side of the equation. You know, with all this new demand, supply seems to vanish because there wasn't enough semiconductor capital equipment spent last year. When you don't have enough chips to go around, that's fantastic for pricing. And that explains the move in the telco-related semis. But how much longer can it last? You know what? Let's use history. Uh, consider the last peak, and that uh, came in November of 2018, particularly when Micron, which is the big daddy, announced that the iPhone cycle was breaking down and demand had evaporated. Smart investors have been betting against Micron for the previous six months. You can see this peak uh, since the stock was selling in 62. That was the last. Uh, that was the top the last time around. OK, I bring that up because these semiconductor cycles tend to play out pretty similarly. The moves are often symmetrical, as we'd say on off charts. And that worries me. Because Micron's now at 59 and change. It's been eight months since the cycle bottomed. You know what? That's long in the tooth. But I think this will be an unusually strong semiconductor cycle because we have not one but two 
uh, prongs, the iPhone and the 5G. Seems realistic that Micron could certainly take out its $62 high. The problem, though, is that most of the other chip makers in the Apple food chain have already exceeded their highs from the last cycle. That makes buying them right here a high-risk pr- uh, proposition because that means Apple's got to guide higher and higher next week. When is that Skyworks reported a total blowout number this very evening? And the stock's barely moving. Someone might trade down. I mean, I find that discouraging. I feel the same way about the semiconductor capital equipment news. After last night's smashing number from Teradyne, uh, everyone knew about this turn. And that's why we've been scaling out of Lamb Research for my charitable trust. You can read our bulletins as a member of the club. We're worried about being greedy. Intel is roaring after the close, trading up foreign exchange, and it's driving compadre AMD up big. Now, I can't count on this buying either one of them up here. AMD, for example, reported a monster good quarter last time. And you know what? The stock got hit. It got hammered. Since then, it's now up nearly 20 points, though. The opportunity came when that mistake had declined. You need that again. Why not wait for it? I have to say the same thing about the data center king, NVIDIA. You know I like NVIDIA. I wouldn't name my dog NVIDIA if I wasn't so confident. But again, I I hate to chase. Okay, so what does it leave? Micron, Qualcomm, perhaps Broadcom, because it's being held back by its acquisition of CA Technologies. It's mainframe-oriented, not Apple. I like all three, but I've got to tell you, after the close, Apple gave Broadcom a huge contract. So that one's trading up. Remember, I did push that pretty hard yesterday. You can't stray too far from what's working, though. We saw last night the Texas Instruments is too car-oriented. Yeah, and despite multiple pumps by bullish analysts after an OK quarter, Atlanta caught it with a thud and traded up a little bit near the end of the day. Uh, I bet the same thing will happen with analog devices. You can still buy an outlier like Western Digital. I know it was up, but that is way down from its 2018 highs. Without a pullback, though, people, I, I think you've missed the easy money here. Now, pullbacks can be expected. However, if you just woke up this morning and looked at the upcycle and say, wow, I think I'm on to something. I'm telling you that for the most part, after the Intel burst, it's getting a little long in the tooth. Stick with Kramer. took a lot of heat yesterday from my pro Netflix call, but remember where I come from. I do market cap analysis, and the capitalization of that company at $150 billion is too small versus what it's doing worldwide. It's a gigantic entertainment company. Comcast, I think the analysts are going to get behind it again. I worked for the company. I was surprised in the negative reaction. I think it's fine. Cord cutting may be too big a thing uh, in the sense that we're worried, maybe overly worried about it. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise you I'll find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer, and I will see you tomorrow. What is Decision Tech by Fidelity? It's technology that can help you find a stock based on what's trending or an investing goal. It's real-time insights and information delivered in your own customized view of the market. It's smarter trading technology for smarter trading decisions. And it's only from Fidelity. Open an account today at fidelity.com trading. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSC SIPC.